Hello. Hello. I'm Alex. And I'm Val. We're going to talk about Sopranos. Mm-hmm. And this is a great episode. What do we do here on this podcast? You know what we should do? We should, uh, we should just, like, pre-record the intro that says we're going to talk about Sopranos and this is a great episode because yeah. it's a very consistent feeling that I have. Yeah. They're all pretty great or episodes. Or what do I usually say? Like, how do we want to talk about this? Yeah. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get there. Yeah. Well, we should pre-record that They're on this episodes. podcast. Yeah. <laughs> we watch an episode and then we straight away go and talk about it. Mm-hmm. So we're not really like other podcasts. Wow. Totally different. I mean... It's a totally different Sopranos experience. I didn't research who Ozzy and Harriet were last week. That was clearly the key to the episode. There's surprises all over the place. You never know what's going to happen. And there were a lot of name drops in this episode. I didn't look any of them up. Yeah, I couldn't reference anything about Luke Costello because I didn't look it up. Mm. Mm. But we still have lots of ideas. Yeah, so we'll (laughs) talk about episode season two, episode six. Mm -hmm. The Happy Wanderer. The Happy Wanderer. Yeah. We have Frank Renzulli coming back, writing it. John Patterson. I think it's his third Sopranos episode. I mean, there's no way you can prove that right now. Meadowlands and I Dreamed of Jeannie Cusimano. Oh. Yeah, there you go. Did you look back at your notes? I don't know. You know, getting pretty deep into Sopranos (laughs) world. (laughs) Cool. Um, Well, this is is an interesting episode. Is there a place where you want to start to go back to our pre-roll? No, but I can see that in both of our notes that we both wrote, Vito! (laughs) <laughs> with, with an exclamation, an exclamation point yeah. that's definitely the most important place to start is that yeah. Vito a character if you haven't seen the show before who comes back later on in the show as a uh, main character in the ensemble and also has already appeared as man in bakery in the first season whoa right? I wonder if he's even Vito here well, it wouldn't really make any sense if he wasn't. <laughs> I guess so. He's just a man in, who walks into the bakery. Right. He's when Christopher shoots the guy behind the counter in the foot and the guy walks in and he tells him to leave. That's actually a character who comes back. That's just a continuity flaw. But now he's back as man at poker game. So maybe you're right. Maybe he's a third character. Crazy. Crazy. Um, I think that's all I actually had to say about this episode. Right. That was good. <laughs> well, I kind of wanted to talk about, there's a few things, but I feel like this element of chance kind of plays through the okay. whole episode. Or like luck. Luck and chance. Mm. And I think it kind of takes it from the very beginning of the episode to the very end. Okay. So. Like getting into Brown. Getting into Brown. So the first scene we have is that meeting, the Brown meeting, and they're talking about, they say, get all your extracurricular and academic ducks in a row. Leave nothing to chance. So already, even in that once, or in in that short phrase, there's actually a lot of Sopranos kind of symbols going on. So first of all, the ducks... I mean, relating to a lot of things that we've talked about, but in the first episode, Tony kind of coming to the realization that it's about his family leaving. Um, So obviously there's an aspect of Meadow leaving the house. And I think there's something here that's interesting about seeing who Meadow is as a character as she develops, who she could be as a person after leaving the house. There's a scene actually where... Uh, Tony's talking to her and he says this is near the end of the episode everything this family has comes from the work I do and she's looking just kind of sad and miserable on Mm -hmm. the dead as she's kind of accepting it and Tony says you could take the high moral ground and go sleep in a bus shelter but the fact is is that actually it was 
take that high moral ground and go sleep at the fucking bus station. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, okay. I wrote I wrote that. I'm one glad down. you wrote it down. Good teamwork. <laughs> anyway, regardless, I think it's important to think about. Meadow doesn't have that luxury of having any say in the life that she lives or the environment that she's put in. So clearly Tony's in the wrong here to say that she can take the high moral ground because she's a child who's been brought into this family and is forced to live in this existence. Mm -hmm. So the question is, is when she leaves the family, who will she be? Mm. Which of these values will she take? Will she reject them? Will she move out of the obvious toxic nature of being a soprano? Do you ever really leave your family, though? Like well, when, when Meadow leaves, is she going to be like Barb? That's the question that remains to be seen and maybe will unfold throughout the entire series, but probably not. No, you're always kind of drawn back in. Yeah. Just when they pull you out or just when. <laughs> <laughs> trying to think of the Sil, Silvio Godfather just quote. When I thought I was out. Yeah. They pull me back in. <laughs> um. But it's interesting, this this aspect of leaving nothing to chance. And obviously there's these games of chance that are this like pivotal part of this episode. But I thought it was really interesting because Dave Scatino, who becomes this main character in this episode, is drawn to chance and to luck. And he says... Um, at one point to Tony, you know, I'm just having like this shit run of luck. Yeah. My luck will change yeah. as Tony is being really imposing and kind of like forcing himself on him and has kind of backed him into this corner. And the impact of Dave being drawn and reliant on chance has negative repercussions on Eric's life. So again, as a child of that family, he has no role in relying on chance. Right. He's actually he a very talented together kid. But the fact that his dad is drawn to these things has this negative impact on him. Whereas Meadow doesn't. So, you know, we see both of them as kind of like talented youth. You know, they're both like kind of singing. He's like Eric is super great at bass. He's an amazing bass player. <laughs> yeah, it's a great sound. As a professional musician, my ears were bleeding by the I loved it. It's okay. Actually, the bass the bass playing was fine. It sounded like they just recorded it through a eighty dollar guitar amp, but that's okay. Very unimportant. Nonetheless, talented kid. But because things are left to chance, and because his dad is relying on his luck, his entire life trajectory is impacted. Whereas Meadow is kind of just constantly rewarded, even though she has this moral conundrum to deal with. Mm. She's given this car. She gets a solo. Carmela says. That's a lucky break. I wonder what happened. Mm. So there's actually, in some ways, like they're manipulating the situation or just kind of like engaging in their own business in a way that negatively affects others, but always kind of comes back to benefit them. Mm. I It was interesting how when they were having that um, conversation at the end of the episode where Meadow mm -hmm. was upset and Tony was yelling and Meadow starts to kind of like stand up for the morality of the situation yeah. he turns to Carm and he's like that's you talking because mm -hmm. they both kind of live in that well I mean everyone who's connected lives in this kind of tricky space where they're complicit yeah which is like I think different from Eric in some ways because Meadow does know what's going on basically right like Eric had no idea this was like out of the blue for him that's you know? right I don't yeah know. and it's interesting too in the scene between Meadow and Eric 
um, where they're talking right before Eric kind of like storms off and actually like opens that door to outside and kind of like leaves, Mm -hmm. which is interesting to think of him as a character who kind of like rejects what's going on, Mm -hmm. like exercising his control and his decision making to kind of detach himself from the injustice of what's happening. And it's interesting that Meadow says to him, and what? You're innocent in all this. So yeah, because he totally is. I, don't, I didn't No, get but that. I feel like Meadow is actually questioning that when she turns to him. She says, like, what? You're innocent in all this? Or, like, your dad is innocent in all this? Mm-hmm. The irony is that... Well, she's not. Like, she's complicit. That's the thing. Like, I don't know why she would assume that he's also... I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, Eric's done nothing wrong in this. He's completely a victim. And yet Meadow is kind of like turning it against him. And I don't think that she's right. And she is misplacing her kind of judgment of the situation Mm -hmm. and her anger. But I think that's interesting, too, because it's almost like what we've seen Tony do in the past. Like when he's kind of cornered and knows he's done something wrong, Mm. he'll kind of flip it and like throw something at the other person that then they have to deal with. Right. It's just, it's interesting because for me, it's almost like Meadow is, that is almost like an answer to the puzzle we, puzzle we were just talking about of like, who will Meadow become? Well, that's a step towards becoming more like her family mm-hmm. and, and taking all those ugly things mm-hmm. from the way that they interact with the world and internalizing them and becoming that person. Because, I mean, Eric is obviously completely innocent and his dad, Davey, it's questionable how innocent he is. He's not no, he's completely not. innocent. And yet to kind of come away from it as a black and white feeling that, well, he. Like he deserved it. He deserved it. Yeah. Is also problematic. Totally. So, and I think Meadows caught in a, in a difficult position. So it's, it's imperfect and, and there's really, it's kind of a lose lose for her, but it is interesting how in the end it comes with this, like, moment of realization from Carmel, like, oh, that's a lucky break. Well, this kind of interplay between luck and who it affects and chance and how it's kind of affecting all the, the players mm-hmm. in, the, in the story are, are really interesting. Mm-hmm. Meadow is also wearing a super racist costume. <laughs> that's a great point. <laughs> so there's that also. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> okay, well, what does that lead you into? I don't know. You go ahead. Okay. How about this Happy Wanderer, the title? Tony talking about the Happy Wanderer. Yeah, I liked that segment where he brings this up to Melfi and Mm -hmm. he talks about, like, how she makes him a victim. Um, Yeah. Now he, like, he... I resent you making me feel like a victim. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And, like, now he's this patient, like, that there's kind of this divide between either people who go through life with these empty heads or whatever, or clear heads or whatever he calls it. Yeah. And then there's this other side of the coin, which is someone who, like, needs help. Um, right. I think that's, like, an interesting black and white. And then I, I guess the other thing, like, I, he's like, I don't know who I'm angry at. Like, he seems mm-hmm. to be really angry at people who can go through life that way. Yeah. And he talks about, yeah. For me, I feel like anger, like, Tony's anger is a really central theme of the second season. And that's something that, like, this season is really kind of trying to examine and kind of, like, get to the bottom of, like, in terms of, like, Tony figuring out where it's coming from. Mm-hmm. It's funny when he says, or it's not funny, but it's interesting when he says, I've got the world by the balls, but I can't help feeling like a loser. So I feel like maybe part of it is, like, Tony's reaction to feeling like a loser 
or feeling unhappy is to respond with anger because we've seen that a lot like when he doesn't know how to deal with something or he doesn't have like a certain sense of conclusiveness to dealing with ambiguous issues Mm -hmm. sometimes he does respond in an angry way so it's almost like a coping mechanism of his and so he's wondering where the anger comes from but he's also incapable of dealing with ambiguity and has these kind of like very kind of like cold cut definitions of how everything happens and he just kind of like can't deal with things that are not settled and so he maybe like responds with anger Mm. and maybe that's a reason why that's kind of popping up Mm. There were also, I don't know, in that conversation, there were definitely some moments where, like, both he and Melfi kind of, like, render each other silent. Like, they're, the therapeutic relationship, I think, in this season is also really different, like, since mm-hmm. Melfi's taken him back. Yeah. And I don't know that, like, like, she doesn't really seem to be capable of getting him to get to the point of some of these issues either. They kind of, like, are attacking each other or something yeah. like that. And it's less about actually right. figuring out what it is like it's more almost like a critique of one's personality yeah rather than interesting kind of asking the right questions i know that's kind of a little bit unrelated but well we've also talked about melfi becoming more like tony mm-hmm. and her responding to cup for bird yeah in angry yeah kind of tony like childlike ways and so yeah i mean that that kind of completely makes sense yeah but no but the happy wanderer thing like i don't know again like he brings up gary cooper again again right like strong silent type yeah you're either like that or you're like this kind of thing yeah um so i don't know like i don't know like how he would classify you know even like someone like davy in this situation right that's right who does he consider to be these happy wanderers (laughs) i can't think of anyone except for his uncle he never knew about urkel yeah you know, like, is that, but then, like, but then Melfi uses that as but a classification of, like, why Tony could now feel good about needing help, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so, I don't know. It's it's hard for me to kind of understand what it is that, like, bothers Tony so much about that. Yeah. It's clearly, like, a preposterous worldview, though. I mean, yeah. to break things down into people like him and the Happy Wanderer, I mean, it's it really plays into that, like, he needs closure and has this like black and white view to describe how everything's happening. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty nonsensical, really. I mean, mm-hmm. even when you try to break it down, like, what is he even getting at? Like, yeah, who is a happy wanderer? Yeah. <laughs> you know, because clearly everybody has their issues and it impacts different people differently. Yeah. And if anything, the issues that we're seeing impact him in the most kind of beneficial manner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, well, I guess... You know, one person that was referenced as the Happy Wanderer was his uncle, or uncle-in-law. So what is it? Tom. Tom. (laughs) His brother-in-law's father. Brother-in-law's father. Very good. Well, you know, I think it's interesting. First of all, actually, when he brings that up in the therapy, we hear about how he died from being pulled by a like blown a, off blown off by a gust of wind which is interesting considering all the associations between wind and death that we've mm-hmm. seen and talked about in previous episodes <laughs> so i mean again they're just like further strengthening their language and their symbology to have wind which we constantly see in terms of like rustling trees rustling branches before often like major climactic violent events and then they have this character who's actually like blown off so 
Yeah, it, it's just it was it was interesting because I guess he talked about him as a as a happy wanderer. Right. I feel like Melfi's the one who kind of classified him as a happy wanderer, right. though. I don't know. I didn't get a good sense of what right. Tony saw it as. It's for me. Part of it is maybe like the nonsensical nature of it is kind of the point too. Like Tony kind of trying to come to grips with his issues. Like there's so many obvious things facing him and us as the audience right in the face. Like he's ruining people's lives. Mm -hmm. He's engaging in violence. He's dealing in this insanely stressful, crazy atmosphere. And yet when he tries to deduce where his anger and his unsettled feelings are coming from, he feels that it's coming from this kind of like nonsensical interpretation of being upset by happy wanderers around him. Mm -hmm. So I feel like there's like just like a lack of self-reflection in terms of the life he lives and the actions that he takes. Right. Yeah. Well, I thought there was also maybe some other, there was a lot of kind of like introductions of the idea of masculinity. Mm. And I think it plays into the anger. Like I feel like a lot of these characters are looking f to fulfill this kind of like image of being a man. And I thought that there were some things that, that came up. Like, I thought that it, with Davy, part of what he's chasing is, like, a sense of belonging. Mm -hmm. Maybe, like, escaping the regularness of his life, mm -hmm. of working at this, you know, sporting store. Right. And trying to, like, kind of, like, fit in with this crowd of, you know, very kind of, like, archetypal male, dominant yeah. male. Well, and he used to be, like, we get that one line where Tony's like, I'm not the little kid on the bus anymore or whatever. Like, he probably like, used to be in school some kind of bully or something, like some kind of more powerful or whatever yeah. guy, right? But now That's he's right. kind of a loser. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, definitely. And I, I thought that, like, maybe what, yeah, so yeah, and then Davey's kind of talking about it, about the, like, I don't make me show their, you know, them your prom photo or whatever. Right. And then when he goes in too and he's playing, like I feel like what he's chasing is maybe what a lot of these characters are chasing, which is like a feeling of power and control over others. Mm. So like there's a scene even like when he's playing poker and it's just like a a classic but also interesting kind of like reflection of a power dynamic, you know, where like the others are checking, it's the dick doctor. <laughs> and uh silvio and then you know davy comes and he kind of like he pushes in and then the others are kind of following but there's like an aspect of kind of like respect that he's getting or excitement and also like control over these people who are clearly like largely in a position to be in control over him and as he finds like towards richie later to tony he's kind of at the whims of other people but he's kind of for a moment at least has some power over the others. You know, we had some other kind of like references. He talks about his jock straps that he's selling. Mm -hmm. You had like Artie talking about Charmaine will have my balls on the menu at the like low stakes poker game where mm -hmm. our friend Vito or mystery poker player number five is playing. So, you know, he's obviously craving a higher stakes poker game than that low stakes one with Artie where he's leaving and, you know, is I guess in some ways like coming across as like emasculated by not being able to participate in that mm -hmm. game. Whereas at the executive game, it's just like all dudes who are just like playing for like days on end. Right. And like, yeah, completely like in that kind of like 
male milieu or whatever. Right. Well, and like I think the Dick Doctor, as you called him, <laughs> what D- is an important Doctor Dick <laughs> is an important character. And Polly's trying. He's to a make very him. important character. You're right. <laughs> yeah, actually, he's my favorite. I think character that he's the key the whole, to the whole yeah. show. No, but like there's. Definitely in terms of this masculinity, right? Like, Polly's making all these Viagra jokes and, like, making motions about the size of people's penises. Yeah. We've also talked about, in terms of control, the cigar kind of often showing Mm -hmm. up as an aspect of control. We had them a couple times this episode. There was a couple. Actually, there was a really interesting one with Tony and Richie. Mm -hmm. Because I think it was kind of like a complicated reading. Often it's just, like, Tony's in a position where he is in control. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's, like brought into question like for example when Melfi calls him to bring him back into therapy and then he kind of takes the cigar out of his mouth and he's clearly like lost control over where he is but he that's an interesting scene actually to compare to the one with Richie because at that point he's comfortable when Furio's like wreaking violence and havoc on the brothel here he's actually like very confused and in a complicated situation at the funeral where his mom's there there, he doesn't know how to deal with it he wants to leave there's all these things that he's managing Janice has now interjected this kind of like weird family dynamic but When he goes to talk to Richie, even though he's kind of out of control at this point and things are kind of getting away from him, he's still dealing with things in the way that he knows the most comfortable. Mm -hmm. He he knows most most comfortably. Mm -hmm. So, you know, now he's saying, I get the 45,000 first, Mm -hmm. you're next. He's responding to Richie's disrespect of the executive game. And so clearly there's issues and this is a like a troubling kind of difficult situation between those two characters and yet at the same time Tony is more in control because he knows how to deal with disrespect the mob right. money then he knows how to deal with all this other stuff yeah just as an aside too like well maybe we can come to it later but I love how excited the guys are about having this executive game it's <laughs> kind of excited. cute yeah you know like it is it's supposed to be this like big thing right they've been like dreaming of this since they were boys or yeah. peeking into the room yeah when junior and johnny used to run it right so yeah. it is this kind of like rite of passage almost or like and you can see it with matt bevilacqua and his friend whose name i never remember <laughs> it's hard to remember that one because he, he, he really doesn't, doesn't get his name said very yeah, much yeah but bevilacqua we can remember yeah. <laughs> um so we kind of see it with them, right? Like they're trying, they're emulating these bigger men. They're yeah. Um, I feel like everybody is yeah. like that's kind of what's happening is that everybody is kind of chasing this idea of masculinity. And at the end of the day, like the most kind of archetypal masculine characters engage in the most toxic forms of it, mm-hmm. and it has this like horrible impact on everybody around them. Mm-hmm. And even them, they're chasing totally an ideal of what it means to be a man. Totally. And maybe are, like, put off or scared of somebody showing, like, their prom picture because that would kind of, like, reject the image that they had built. Although I love that both Tony and Richie at the end at Meadows Cabaret or whatever it is are there with flowers. Right. And they're both, like, holding these bouquets of flowers. (laughs) And Tony's, like, really sniffing his. Right. So, I don't know. Like, again, like, it's it's complicated. I mean... I was. I thought it was interesting too, like how far Tony talks Davy out of joining the executive game, and in some ways, like that kind of complicates his image, because he is this toxic character, but he actually goes pretty far to get Davy not to participate in it because he knows how it would damage him. Yeah, I was thinking about that because he references it later 
in the series where he says that he was manipulating him into right. joining. But I feel like everything we see in that interaction of getting Davy to go to the executive game, he really is trying to get him out of it. It's only when he shows up and then Tony still kind of talks him out of it. And then he basically like doesn't force his way in, but he's just like not really taking no for an answer. Yeah, but at the same time, like Tony's smart enough to kind of know that Davy is trying to like escape from this fucking regularness of life or whatever, mm -hmm. right? Like so he talks about like, oh, these are big guys or whatever. Oh, you need at least this much. <sighs> like, I don't know. Like, is is Tony that sociopathic? Maybe. Maybe that's an impressive level of being a well, sociopath. I don't know. I wouldn't. Put I feel it, I wouldn't put that's it actually a rare it's kind aspect. Of like, it's kind of like with Artie, you know. Yeah, for me, it was like a rare time where I actually bought it. That he does value this kind of like maybe it's a casual friendship, but this relationship that he has with Davey and he is kind of looking out for him. Okay. I feel like the evidence that we have from this episode doesn't lead me to believe that he's manipulating him by praying. I mean, I think it would be so easy to just get him into play. I don't know what that would accomplish either. To like play off of all of his insecurities and like read him like a book with like maximum psychological awareness and get him to do it of his own volition. I mean, he was willing to do it yeah, at, at well, all he points. Does, but he doesn't like happy wanderers. He wants to punch them in the face. You know? <laughs> That's what he said. That's true. And so, like, if, you know, Davey, like, we see them all at the college night, right? Like, yeah. and they're all, like, their kids are all going to college, and you know, Artie's brought all these pastries, and um, maybe Tony did see him like that. He didn't know at that point about his gambling issue, or at least we don't know that yeah. he knew about his gambling issue, because he was dealing with Richie. Yeah. So... I don't know. Maybe that is kind of like a way to like, you know, we just want to get rid of all these happy wanderers or smash them in the face. Right. Well, unknown, a little bit ambiguous. Yeah. But I thought it was interesting, actually, in that very early scene of the Brown orientation or mm -hmm. information meeting, when actually that very first line where they say, leave nothing to chance. And then Davey, like at that moment, almost like, like walks leaves. up and leaves. Yeah. And so there's some kind of some attention brought to him that link those two things. But it's funny, like, at that moment where Davey meets with Tony, Tony's wearing, like, all black. Like, and I know I'm, I don't think I can go an episode without talking about it. The bathroom had, that's like, it. a lighter tone on the top and a darker tone on the bottom. That's very funny. You're just, <laughs> excellent did. sense of humor. Thanks. <laughs> no, but I think there is something about, like, Tony representing this, like, kind of vice and this world that Davey is drawn towards. Mm -hmm. And ultimately kind of like falls into. Like seeing those two characters together. I don't know. For me, there was something. And I feel like at this point, and we've, I've, I was going to say we, but really I've talked a lot about <laughs> the uses of whites and blacks. What about Polly and the dick doctor? We're both wearing the same color of blue. <laughs> <laughs> this is it. This is all I have. And I'm, not even I'm just talking about black. Blacks and whites. Oh, I'm talking about that color of blue they were both wearing. Okay. Well, I'm not even going to go there. <laughs> I didn't think it meant anything. Maybe oh. it did, though. I have a lot of faith in David Chase. Mm. But I, I do feel that, like, Davy is drawn to this, like, underworld. There's something that's bringing him out of the regularness of life. And Tony kind of represents the portal into it mm -hmm. for him. And there's a juxtaposition well, between lots of those two characters as people, too. They come from different worlds. 
And yeah, I don't, I, do they come from different worlds? I mean, I, I think guess so. I guess like Davy's parents I weren't in like, the mob, but like they clearly yes. grew up. T- they grew up together. They went to school point. together. But I feel like Tony is Artie just too, from a like, completely different. Sorry, Tony is from a completely different place. The fact that he lives in this kind of like upper class New Jersey suburban world for me is kind of forced like mm. he is the outsider in that community mm-hmm. and everything that he is and stands for and comes from is different and he has just like a different worldview a different set of expectations and a different way of interacting with everything than these other people and when they come into close interaction unless there's somebody like Artie who's still kind of drawn into a lot of the worst parts mm-hmm. of it, but manages to keep his distance sometimes, probably through the benefit of mm-hmm. having Charmaine. Mm-hmm. He can kind of maintain somewhat of a close friendship and yet not be completely pulled under. That's interesting. By the undertow. And yet well, these I, other characters, yeah. I feel like they're just completely obliterated yeah. when they come into contact with Tony. Yeah. In fact, even like, I feel like... <laughs> Davy coming home, seeing the car and saying no off-roading, getting rid of the car. You know, how many times did I have to tell you? Even that kind of aspect of like projecting the issue onto another is very Tony-like by saying like, Eric, this is your fault. Or even like, you know, for me, and we were talking about this earlier in this episode, like Meadows saying like, what, and you're innocent in this, this like projection in instances where people really... It's not their fault. And actually, the actions of Tony or the Sopranos are so linked to these horrible outcomes, but they can't realize it. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I feel. Yeah. I feel like actually, that actually reminds me of something else, too, is like the mobs just kind of like compulsive taking advantage of things. Mm. So Christopher, too, when he's using that. yeah, Yeah, the scales and the matchbook. Actually, there was interesting. There was a few times where The Sopranos did some like really interesting just composition of the frame that has become kind of classic. They they've had a lot of shots where you have like two people talking and then focus on something kind of in between them but behind in the background. Right. And you can kind of pick up what it is. So there was a few of them in this that I thought were really interesting. There was one at the funeral. Tony's in front. I believe it's with Carmela, AJ, and Meadow, mm-hmm. and they're all kind of sitting in a way where there's like. A gap in between them and you can see Livia so clearly mm-hmm. there's this like direct line mm-hmm. and actually the way that the frame is kind of composed like your attention actually kind of is drawn to Tony who's talking but also to Livia at the same time mm-hmm. like it's this constant kind of like imposing presence that's there and another one is the matchbook scene where where Chris is there and then he's talking to Matt and the other <laughs> <laughs> Matt's friends. <laughs> and there's actually the same level of focus in between them. The 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 framing kind of like creates the matchbook to be seen in between them. Right. So the same way that a lot of the time like you'll see people talking and then maybe a person behind them. Right now you see that matchbook. And for me it kind of represents something. Yeah. It's like actually you see it. I think during that exact scene is where Chris is saying this ain't no nickel and dime shit. And talking about the executive game mm-hmm. while you see this matchbook mm-hmm. I mean, what could be more nickel like and dime than that yeah. so anyway i thought that that was interesting in the way that they kind of can use just like an object to represent an idea of kind of what's happening i love in that scene too like he's not even the one paying for it that's right i know at the end i was thinking like wow that's really dedication it's just yeah like for the sake of it almost well and i think that's the point i yeah. mean they're so committed to this lifestyle, and that's the only way that they know to exist that is just nonstop. Yeah. You know, for me, I love this episode. 
It's actually probably one of my favorites of the season. And I love it's like this standalone story for the mm. most part. Mm. Like, I always kind of remember that story of Davy and the poker game. And I think maybe even like I saw this episode as a standalone before I even watched the series, like as a kid. Oh, interesting. And I remembered that story. And it's a testament to how this show could do short stories so well. Yeah. Because you could just see this episode and it really does kind of bring you from the beginning to the end and introduces new characters. Mm -hmm. And we see their full arc or their full like descent. Yeah. Basically. Do we see? We see Davies. We do see him more. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But that's a new character. And this story is. I mean, in a lot of ways, it, it, it does get expanded on, but we get the full kind of mm-hmm. scope of it. Mm-hmm. But yeah. that being said, as much as I love this episode, I feel like that's kind of what I have to say about it. Yeah. Probably one of our shorter episodes. We also got some food delivered. We also got some food <laughs> delivered, so maybe we'll eat that. Yeah. Take that as our cue. Yeah. Thanks for listening. We'll be back and looking forward to talking about more Sopranos. I, I can't remember, but I'm pretty sure it's a uh, good episode. A full leather jacket, I think. Oh, excellent. No, it's D-Girl. Oh. Oh. How could you? Oh. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, two good episodes coming up then. That's right. If Look, you like D-Girl, which I do. I do. Okay. I like them all. They're all good episodes. Yeah. So, yeah, we'll just get that pre-roll going and say it's a good episode. It's a good episode. And where do we start? Well. Bye. Tune in. <laughs>